You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. I would like to thank everybody who has been rating and reviewing on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, who have been answering the Q&As and sharing and commenting and, yeah, those five-star reviews. Yeah, you really... You really went for it this year, didn't you? Like, to everyone as well in the UK who was doing it because I managed to hit number 30 on the UK Spotify chart, like, just in time for Spotify Wrapped. So that was that was a nice wee end of the year. I mean, I'd like to go higher just to, just to annoy some people more than anything else because, you know, I'm petty and I'm at a point where I'm just pissed off. I mean, things are doing okay. I mean, it's frosty and I have to get ready for Disneyland Paris with my kids. And everything's booked and that's fine. But, um, clothes. I haven't got any clothes organised. And my washing machine... How would I put this? Uh, the water pipe leading into the washing machine froze. And I cannot defrost it because it is under the ground. And yeah, yeah, we, we, we don't have clothes. I mean, I have some things. I can make things work. But the distinct lack of underwear is now starting to cause a problem. And now I'm thinking, do I just go old school as if I'm trying to make wine? You know, chuck it in the bath, stomp on it with the parasol or whatever, the fairy, or, or I don't know. Uh, no, whatever, non-bio, like, washing powder, washing liquid, washing gel. Shove any of it in, all of it in, fabric conditioner, don't care, just stomp, 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 stomp. I'd say we used to clean sheets <laughs> and duvets. I remember cleaning duvets in my ex's house and I was unaware that he'd never washed a duvet before in his life and things were coming out brown and yellow we all know what yellow is and I was just ew but anyway back to back to the start I got a really lovely postcard actually from the bars ankle high podcast 
Uh, so it's like lovely just in time for Christmas because like there's not too much time to send things away now. But they sent like a card and all these beautiful stickers and it was just really, really lovely. That being said, <laughs> she says, I I have not been in the best of moods. I don't know if you can hear it, but my voice is still a little off. Because even though I am neurodivergent, I have ADHD and an anxiety disorder and OCD and I don't know, whatever other tomfuckery comes along with it. And so panic is generally my default setting, but I am just consistently stressed. Uh, It's just never ending and my tolerance for shitty men has just reached its peak like it's it's done there is zero zilch nothing there so so far this week I have had a content strategy dude like reach out to me and go on about how he can promote my podcast through my socials and how he's had all these people go from like 300 followers to like 30,000 followers you know just by using him and you know clearly he's not even looked at any of my socials because there's like almost 300,000 on TikTok, there's like 150 something on Instagram, like you're not looking and you're reaching out to me and like the first thing you should do as someone who is, you know, involved in content strategy is do your fucking research and I get this shit all the time and if you want me to promote something, talk about something, share something, then you need to do your bit, like you're pitching me, you should know your shit, right? And he just did not. And so I started getting snippy, as I do with all these people. And he told me I was high and mighty because I asked for testimonials for 10 podcasters who had my social media following or more that he had helped grow. And he called me a bitch. (laughs) Like, you could have responded to that with like, I don't have 10 because I've only been doing it so long. But here's three, right? Three is enough to have, you know, a tried and tested, you know, approach. And then had this dude, Jimothy. Jimothy, I mean, his name is James, but we have all decided, including the Bar's Ankle High podcast, that his name is Jimothy. Oh yeah, as does murder most Irish. Go listen to them, they're fabulous. And of course, the host of the Kraken's Cabin podcast. So yes, we have this. Dude, we, I have this dude, Jimothy, who, who feels the need to comment on a video about a nation being bombed by the British Empire and then billed for the artillery that was used to, you know, kill its citizens. He told me that I was too angry, that my posts would do better and that people would be more likely to listen to me if I communicated better by being more approachable. Jimothy, you absolute twat waffle. Approachable. I'm talking about people being murdered and you want me to be approachable. Now, I understand, Katie, that you're discussing a genocide, um, but have you considered smiling more? Like, would... At what point is that a rational thought in someone's head? Like, where does that come from? Like, you should be nicer when you're talking about violent assaults on women. 
Naturally, I called out Jimothy for tone policing a female academic who knows more than he does. Because, you know, I'm used to this. I get crap all the time. I get death threats and rape threats and everything else that goes with it. I get that. I deal with it. And I get stupid stuff like this telling me to be more pleasant when I'm talking about horrific acts committed throughout history. Like, get to fuck, pal. But no. And... So I did one of my silly little clapback videos, you know, because I'm a petty bitch. And <laughs> I did that. And boy, did Jimothy get well angry. He was just unable to deal with the consequences of his actions and the fact that other people started calling him out for his clearly misogynistic and outright stupid statement. And then he started crying wolf. Like, he was... He was trying to say that he was as if he didn't actively choose to post a sexist comment. And the funniest thing about it is um, he was going on about how I had caused a mob to like attack him. When again, all I did was respond to his comment with a silly joke, right? And he's like, your mob is after me and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, is the mob in the room with us right now? <laughs> Dude. And so it got to the point I was just like, block all future comments from Jimothy because, oh, I don't have time for that. And when he realised he was just screaming into the void, he started commenting on my stories and like sending me messages. And I just uh, started screenshotting those and sharing them. And he was like, you're bullying me. I was like, Oh no, I'm such a horrible Billy for publicly posting the horrible things that you are trying to say to me privately. Again, read the room. I always find that the people who are like, don't wash your dirty linen in public, are always the ones with the filthiest sheets. But anyway, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's been nearly nine minutes, Katie. Quit that jibber-jabber and fact me. In fact, you I will, but first... We've got to get our source on. Our sources are... Dickens by Peter Ackroyd Charles Dickens by Joseph Lawrence Black Dickens' Family Authorship Psychoanalytic Perspectives on Kinship and Creativity by Lynn Kane Charles Dickens and the House of Fallen Women by Jenny Hartley The Other Dickens a Life of Catherine Hogarth by Lillian Nader Dickens and Empire Discourses of Class, Race and Colonialism in the Works of Charles Dickens by Grace Moore Dickens and Women by Michael Slater The Invisible Women The Story of Nellie Ternan and Charles Dickens by Claire Tomlin Charles Dickens' His Tragedy and Triumph by Edgar Johnson And of course we have our old favourites History.com, History Extra and Biography.com are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. Okay, so before we really get into it, I do need to apologise to y'all. Because I know, I know I said I was going to cover an alleged female serial killer. And I will. But I was really in the mood this week to just talk about awful men. And you know, I do like an awful author, as you know. I like to share that information. I've already covered James Barry and... Um, the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. Although just the life and then death of Edgar Allan Poe. He's not awful, was he? He was, he was fine, I guess, for the era. 
But like even in his time, Charles Dickens was just an absolute shit. Now, if I could go back in time and have a fist fight with anybody, anybody in the world, Charles Dickens would be the one. I would punch that man in his fucking face. I absolutely would. But, you know, I am getting ahead of myself. And we should start the story at the very beginning. Charles Dickens was born on the 7th of February, 1812, at One Mile End Terrace in Portsmouth. Or, like, it's now Portsmouth. It was originally Port Sea Island. Because, of course, it was. So, yes, he was born to John Dickens, a Navy pay office clerk, and to Elizabeth Dickens, a woman. A woman who would later go on to inspire Mrs. Nickleby in Nicholas Nickleby and Mrs. Micawber in David Copperfield. And Charles is the second of eight children that these two have together. When Charles is three years old, his father is relocated and they have to move to London. A year later, they're in Sheerness and then to Kent. Now, luckily, up until like the age of 11, and the first few years of his life go pretty well, he manages to get a private education. He gets to go to two very good schools. He is seeing clown performances. He is reading book after book, even though he is ever so slightly dyslexic. It's pretty mild, but it's there. And he is doing all right. And everything seems to be going fine up until the age of 11. Because, you see, a good life comes with a cost. And unfortunately, Mr. Dickens, senior, he was in a fuck ton of debt. They were living beyond their means. And so when he was recalled back to the Navy clerk office, all the family moved back apart from Charles, who was still, you know, in education. He was 11, he was boarding or whatever. And unfortunately, because of the, you know, ever-increasing amounting debt, Charles' father gets sent to debtor's prison. And it's from this point that things swiftly turn shitty for the Dickens family, because they're without means. And yet, at only 11 years old, he is having to lodge and board with, like, family friends, or at one point staying in the literal, like, back attic, not even the front attic, the back attic of the agent or an agent of the insolvent court. So, like, the debtor's court. Like, he's just staying in one of their, like, shack attics because, you know, they're kind enough to let him stay there. Because not really anywhere else to go. And, like, at this point, he's in school and so is his sister Frances, who's at the Royal Academy of Music. And every Sunday when they're off, they go to the debtor's prison to spend time with their father. Which honestly would be a pretty bleak experience now, let alone back in Victorian England. And unfortunately for the Dickens children, there's no such thing as child labour laws at this point. And so when Dickens here is 12 years old, he and Francis have no choice but to leave school. Like, they can't afford to stay. They have to earn money for their family. And so he gets a job at Warren's Blacking Factory, where he sits for 10 hours a day, pasting the labels onto bottles of shoe polish. It is a long day of monotonous, tedious work that just empties the soul of all joy. And yeah, 12 years old, this is what he's doing. 
And at this point, I could understand you feeling sorry for Charles Dickens. I mean, this is not a pleasant childhood at all. And yeah, one thing to remember, though, is that a shitty childhood does not a shitty human make. Like, just because things were bad doesn't mean you have to be a horrible trash human. Now, as we know, clearly, Mr. Dickens here does not stay forever with the shoe polish bottles. Uh Uh-uh. He gets out because his father gets out of debtor's prison or because he lands an inheritance because Granny Dickens is dead. Hooray, I guess. So yeah, John Dickens is out of debtor's prison and Elizabeth, Charles Dickens' mum, argues that Charles should continue to work in the Blacken factory. Like, he should stay there. Like, it's good for him. And so because his mum was like, you need to stay working, which he absolutely fucking despised. Like, at one point, the factory had this window where people would just watch the children work. Which, listen, I I get it. I get not wanting people to watch you work, but like, you're Victorian England. I feel like it's not the worst of situations you could be in, you know, for a 12-year-old boy during this time period. Anyway, back to my point, because she's so, like, pro-children working, this is what gives Charles Dickens the opinion that men should rule the roost and women should just be stuck in the home being womanly and doing women things, right? Just men are in charge. Like, yeah, or maybe she was worried about all of her family suffering financial ruin and ending up on the streets. Yeah? No? Okay. Who knew that all you needed to have a misogynistic view of women was to have a working class job for a couple of months? That's not disconcerting at all. So after this, Charles Dickens ends up continuing his education at an academy in Camden, which, yeah, he he wasn't so keen on. After this, he gets a job as a junior clerk at a law office, where he is pretty well liked. He's funny, he's smart, he can do really good impressions, he can memorise stuff, probably memorise things, you know, because of the whole male dyslexia situation. Makes things easier, you know? And when he wasn't working, he went to the theatre, like, a fuck ton. He was at the theatre constantly, like, at one point he was going to one show every day and just, like, learning all the lines. But yeah, you know, I can't really say anything on that because I was the person who used to rewind the VHS and then after that five minutes of I would watch uh, the movie Grease all over again. So I can still quote it to this day. Didn't realise that that was a thing, but apparently, yes. Yes, I can. That and who framed Roger Rabbit. Anyway, when Charles Dickens wasn't at the theatre, he was at the College of Civilians. Now, it was also known as the Doctor's Commons. It was basically this um, group of like lawyers or solicitors practising civil law. So it's about like the Navy and the church and whatnot. See, this like distant relative of his, like Thomas Charlton, he has a box there at the Doctor's Commons, which he lets Charles Dickens use. And Charles, at this point, he has learned freehand, he's become a freelance reporter, and he uses this to his advantage, and he ends up reporting on 
sort of the cases and shit there for like four years. And it's this which gives Charles Dickens his particular viewpoint on poverty, which is a pretty decent one to have. Like, again, not great with women, but also pretty decent views on poverty and the way the poor are treated. And it's the situations here, you know, along with his lived experience, that go on to inspire many of his novels. And Charles Dickens, he is 18 years old. He is reporting. He is doing well in his life. And bam, falls in love. And he falls head over heels for the beautiful, astounding Maria Bidnell, who is the inspiration for Dora in David Copperfield. So, he is just, again, madly, madly in love with her. And originally, he's seen as a really good prospect for Maria. Like, initially, they see him as a pretty acceptable suitor, but... But yeah, her family start getting a bit worried, like, what if the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? And he is, in fact, just really bad with money and will put our daughter in a lifetime of peril and debt. You know, not too keen on that. And so they start putting obstacles in the way. I also find it really funny that her mum kept getting his name wrong. And now I'm wondering if it was deliberate just to, like, bug him. But yeah, so she would do that and they would just try and keep them apart. And eventually, they end up sending Maria off to Paris. Although full of unrequited love, Charles Dickens, at the age of 20, you know, he's still trying to live his life. He's trying to move on. And he's trying to decide what he wants to do with his life. Does he want to be a clerk by day, reporter by night? Not really. He wants fame. Doesn't know why he wants it, but he wants to be famous. He wants to be known. Like, this is his thing. Like, he's just so obsessed with being important, right? Yeah, yeah, right? And so... He goes to the theatre, he joins um, the Garrett Club and he, he gets an audition, you know, to act and he decides he's going to do this impression of Charles Matthews, who's this like really big comedian at the time and lo and behold, he misses the audition because, and I kid you not, he had a cold, a cold. Now the flu, I could understand pneumonia, but he had the sniffles and missed his audition. Like, there was no corruptors at that point, Charles. You, you could have made it. You could have made it. But yeah, before he manages to miss another audition, Charles Dickens, you know, uh, decides to just lean into the whole writing thing. Like, it's good. He knows what he's doing. And lucky for Dickens here, his maternal uncle offers him a job on the Mirror of Parliament, which is political newspaper. So he works in the House of Commons and basically gets a job as a political journalist. Now, he turns 21 and he throws himself a coming-of-age party. Woo! Cool, dude. That being said, I mean, live your own life. Like, that. that's a cool thing to do. Throw your own party. Invite everyone, including the Beatles. So Maria shows up, remember? The big love of his life, the one he wants to marry the most beautiful and wonderful girl in the world, who, um, fucking insults him. She's been studying in Paris. She is worldly. She's come back probably with some kind of accent 
and keep saying croissant instead of croissant because you know she is now so French and yeah so she comes back poisson <laughs> she comes back où est mon petit chien oh god that's just some bad French and so she comes back and she's at this party and she just fucking insults him she calls him a boy um, implying that he is not, in fact, a man, not a manly man, like, you know, the French. And so this is the final nail in the coffin of this relationship. And after this, Maria goes on to marry Mr. Henry Winter. No, I don't know who Mr. Henry Winter is. I just know that he's the guy that got the girl that Charles Dickens was after. And what does Dickens do? He leans into his work. He's doing political journalism. He's writing short stories. He is writing them under a pseudonym called Bones. Because, like, his brother called him Moses, which then somehow ended up as Mose, which ended up as Bose. And, yeah, it's not it's not a great trajectory, but it is there. And like, people know it's him that's writing, which is the funniest thing. And they're like, why? Like, you already have a weird name. Why are you writing under a weirder one? So yeah, while he's doing this, he's also being an absolute arse. I'm not sure on how the best way to put this, but Charles Dickens was the equivalent of a human shit poster. So what he would do is he would deliberately try and annoy people. He would troll, you know. So he would go up to people in the street and just start talking nonsense at them or shout at them and just do things to make them leave, which is bad enough. But, like, he used to do weird shit to women as well. Like, there's reports of him doing this more than once, which is really fucking weird. And, uh, legitimately, creepy as fuck. There's reports of him doing this near the beach, or at the very least, beach adjacent. He would just go up to women, give them a fireman's lift, like, chuck them over his shoulder, carry them towards the water, and would tell them that he's going to murder them. Women he didn't know, random women in the street, he found this particularly funny. Like, this was a hobby. He did this more than once, and this amused him to no end. Like, imagine that. It's Victorian London. You are promenading. And next thing you know, some random dude grabs you, which, again, not a very good thing to do. Socially, that's a big no-no. Carries you away, takes you to the fucking water, and is saying all the ways that he is going to end your life. Not cool. Not acceptable. What the actual fuck is wrong with this man? Like, the couple months of working in the shoe polish factory, honestly, shouldn't have done this to your brain, mate. Anyway, when Charles Dickens is 22, he gets a job at the Evening Chronicle. Basically, the Morning Chronicle decided to have, like, an evening version. Run by George Hogarth, who happens to be the Morning Chronicle's, like, music editor. And so Dickens starts spending a lot of time with Hogarth and his three eligible daughters. Georgina, Mary and Catherine. And from this moment... Dickens is gaining traction, like he is rising the ranks professionally, socially, and he ends up getting all of these great collaborators and friendships, like things are going well for Dickens. Frankly, everything is coming up Millhouse. 
and Dickens starts writing and publishing the Pickwick Papers. So he is paid by the instalment, like the volume. So this is the era of the Penny Dreadful, where like the novel at the time wasn't really seen as like super high class because, and these stories were made for public consumption. So they weren't seen as, you know, high tier by any stretch of the imagination. But the public really liked his work. And so he kept writing. Now, there's this common misconception that he was paid by the word. He wasn't. He was paid by the volume. It was by instalment. So yeah, that's why he's so wordy. That's why he describes things in great detail, especially the further on you get in his novels. It's because he's paid by volume. Because he is just, you know, squeezing, you know, every last bit of, of, of juice out of it. He is just getting every last drop. Which, I mean, you can understand for someone who was afraid of debt. Now, things are going well for him personally too because because between installments two and three of the Pickwick Papers, Catherine Hogarth, who he met at the age of 19, they get engaged and then married. Yeah, they get married at St. Luke's Church in Chelsea in London on the 2nd of April, 1836. And they have like a wee honeymoon in Kent and then they return back home. Well, back to their lodgings. So yeah, pretty sharply after that in January, like the first of their 10 children is born. So like Charles Jr. And so in chronological order, we have Charles, Mary, Kate, Walter Landor, Francis, Alfred Dorsey Tennyson, so many names, Sidney Smith Haldimand, Henry Fielding, Dora Annie, and Edward. Like, just the further down the list they go, the bigger the names get. Like, okay. Now, Charles and Catherine Dickens do end up getting their own house together, but then his brother and her sister move in. And so they're together not for a long time, and Charles Dickens gets very, very close to Catherine's sister, Mary. Now, I'm not saying it was weird. I'm just saying that he was incredibly close and was very distraught at her passing, even though he did not know her very well, nor, especially by the standards of the era, but in the few months that she lived there, they ended up becoming so close that... After a brief illness, Mary ends up passing away in Charles Dickens' arms. And Charles Dickens was so upset at her passing that he couldn't write, like he had to stop writing, because um, Mary was 17 when she died. And he just had to stop. He couldn't take it. He was delaying like the Pickwick Papers and the installment of Oliver Twist. It was just a break, which he didn't do. He didn't stop for shit. He just kept writing, you know? And surprise, surprise, she ends up being the inspiration for some lovely women in his novels. But professionally, things were just absolutely dandy for him. He was doing well. Like, he was so popular at this point that the higher classes were reading his stuff. It wasn't just, you know, I mean, the middle class who could read but weren't, you know, high and mighty. This was the queen herself. 
like Queen Victoria, who at this point was still pretty young, she was reading Oliver Twist, she was reading the Pickwick Papers, she was reading Charles Dickens stuff, so he was legit at this point. That being said, he wasn't super happy with his publishers, he was like buying off one and like sending off the rights to another, he was just trying to get shit sorted, right? And he is just being his usual arsey self. And it's during this point that it's noted that he's being very flirty with women. He is sort of being initially casually flirty with like the fiance of this person and the girlfriend or, you know, acquaintance of that person. And he's doing all this stuff. And it's one of the fiancés here that he does this like weird kidnapping shit to. Um, Eleanor Picken, which just sounds like someone out of his novels. Like, she's engaged to the best friend of his lawyer, right? Which feels like a bad move to be involved in anyway. And he's being his charming, flirty self. But he does that weird, beachy kidnapping shit again. And this is the last recorded time of him doing that. Thank Christ. But honestly, I feel like typically... If someone is, you know, of the habit of stealing, threatening assault and violence on women and, you know, murder, I feel like that is not a person one should want to associate with or tolerate the behaviour of. Now, call me a woke, millennial, angry, feminist, liberal, whatever the fuck you want, but to me that just doesn't pass the vibe check. Luckily for Miss Eleanor, she is smart and wise enough to just keep the fuck away from this absolute weirdo. Now, when Charles Dickens is not being an absolute scumbag to women, he's doing, he's doing writing. And, you know, here's the thing. He did write some pretty good books. And I am of the opinion that you can absolutely separate the art from the artist. As long as the artist is dead and can no longer profit on their work to support their shitty viewpoint and our lives. Anywho, he is writing Nicholas Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop, Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Rights of Eighty, Master Humphrey's Clock Series. Like, he is just boom, 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 writing, writing, writing. So Charles Dickens ends up doing this tour of Scotland, because he has to go up to Edinburgh to do, like, a talk or whatever, He's in Edinburgh, he has some time before he has to do this whole, you know, speech situation. And naturally, he decides to take a little ramble through a graveyard. As we all do. Now, I make jokes about this, but I genuinely enjoy really old graveyards. Now, at this point, the graveyard shouldn't have been that old. But yeah, he is trudging through it. And you know, looking at the gravestones and he comes across the gravestone of one Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm Helena Bonham Carter and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Well, I say, Scrooge. His name is Ebenezer Lennox Scroggy, and he was a quote-unquote mealman. Um, basically, he sold cornmeal, like he sold grain, like that was his job. But being mildly dyslexic, he thought it said Scrooge, and then it said mean man. He got it, he got it mixed up. And uh, this guy, Ebenezer, he was known for being just like a womanizer and a partier and just a promiscuous party animal. Like, he got in trouble with the Church of Scotland twice. The first time because he shagged one of his servants, which, you know, is an abuse of power at the best of times. But they weren't so much worried about that than about the fact that they had a child out of wedlock. And he interrupted the General Assembly of the Church by groping a countess. Like, he grabbed her bum. Like, who, what, this? Yep, and that is, that is who Charles Dickens based Ebenezer Scrooge on. Like, that's, that's where he got the name. But made him miserly and mean and just penny-pinching. And yeah, ruined the name Ebenezer, which is just a pretty cool name. So yeah, two years later, he writes that. In the meantime, after Edinburgh, he ends up taking a wee trip to the States. I mean, he doesn't go alone. He goes with his wife, Catherine. He brings her too, and they're heading to Massachusetts. And it's Catherine's sister, Georgina, that's at home with the kids. And she basically becomes, like, a housekeeper for them. which. Mm. there's issues with Georgina because she spends an awful lot of time with Mr Dickens and there's rumours they had an affair, you know and it's kind of, yeah it's going to come into it more later on but we'll get to it, but yeah Charles and Catherine are in Massachusetts he ends up doing a wee tour of the States and he's just pissing people off everywhere he goes. So the first thing he does is he's doing this tour and he's doing talks about plagiarism of his works in the States and like international copyright law because at this point there wasn't any and I think we said this in the Edgar Allan Poe episode that just people were just republishing like British and European works in America and being like, it's mine now, go fuck yourselves. So he ends up convincing like a bunch of other writers to like 
sign a petition for him to bring to Congress and the press is just like, who the fuck is this English twat? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Like, would just stay in your lane. But yeah, he's doing these these talks and he's going round and he ends up eventually in like Canada and on the stage. Like he's doing comedies because the man just fucking loves attention. When he finally returns to England, he is working on his Christmas stories. And again, Ebenezer Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. So that one comes out, followed by The Chimes the following year, and then The Cricket on the Hearth the year after that. Now, you may not have heard of the other ones, because shockingly enough, A Christmas Carol is the only one to involve Muppets. Now, no cheeses for us Mises is a quality line and I will not hear anything against it. Like, I actually still quote, Heat wave, this is my island in the sun. Um, although I should say, I once wrote a pantomime and directed actually a pantomime based on A Christmas Carol. I had the ghost of Christmas present come out like as a present and the, oh my goodness, the, um, the ghost of future yet to come ended up doing charades because they were supposed to be mute and it it was very silly but uh yeah 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 anyway I had like a choir singing like carol singers outside as Scrooge walks past and he's being bothered and they're outside going deck the halls with boughs of holly and he's like telling them to shut up and then they like snap to him and be like there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm. If there was a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Um, which I completely plagiarised uh, off of a Muppet Christmas Carol because it's quality. And I would never regret that. So yeah, Christmas Carol ends up catching the hearts of just Victorian England in London. And it starts bringing back this whole concept of a wholesome Christmas because carolers back in the day they weren't exactly the pillars of the community it Christmas was just a big party people were getting absolutely sloshed carol singers would go around to people's houses and sing and demand food and other such goodies and if you did not provide it to them they would break into your house and steal your shit and beat you up and this ended up as a more sort of nostalgic, wholesome situation. And, you know, also highlighted the issues of, you know, the working class and the poor. Good things. You know, not denying the being good about the poor stuff, but, you know, <laughs> terrible to women. So he is really getting into Christmas Carol and that just becomes his bread and butter for a while. And he ends up. And he ends up living around Europe for a bit. He goes to Italy. He goes to Switzerland. He ends up riding Dombey and Son and David Copperfield. So around about this time, he ends up finding out about this dude working for his brother's farm. And this fella, Powell, they were friendly. They were getting on. And Powell was like a poet and a writer too. And there was an embezzlement at his brother's farm. And it looked like Powell was responsible right? And Powell ends up going to America 
and writes this book about, you know, great English authors and writes a less than pleasant uh, piece on Charles Dickens. And Charles, being the completely rational and not at all, you know, petty man that he is, writes to, like, magazines and newspapers in the States and tells them that Powell is a forger and a thief and just this awful, awful person. And this ends up with Powell getting arrested. And Charles Dickens ends up being sued by Powell for, you know, libel or, you know, slander. And Charles Dickens ended up going to his brother's farm asking for, like, written confirmation that Powell was, you know, the thief. And they're like, yeah, sure. So they write some shit down for him. And then they realise that Dickens here is planning to use it in court. And they straight up refuse to give any more information. And Charles Dickens has to settle out of court because he doesn't have evidence about what Powell did. Anywho, Dickens then gets a job as the editor of the Daily News. It's like this liberal paper in London. And uh, he doesn't do well with it. He lasts, what, I don't know, 10 weeks before just quitting because he just can't deal with the stress of the job. After this, he ends up taking a break and goes to one of his favourite places to holiday, France. And um, Charles, he had he had a weird hobby. Now, how do I put it? Uh, he liked to look at bodies. The dead bodies. Like, he used to go into the Paris public morgue just for fun. He would just go in and stare at corpses for fun. He would watch dead bodies as an act of recreation. Now I can understand being drawn to the macabre and I can understand, you know, doing research, but considering the significant lack of corpses or relevant information regarding corpses in Charles Dickens, you know, bibliography, yeah, you know, there's something he did just for kicks and he would visit here regularly like every time he visited Paris he was in the fucking morgue he said himself and I quote I am dragged by an invisible force into the morgue oh yeah one time he made one of his pals come with him and then made fun of him for not being comfortable staring at corpses wow what a kind of considerate friend you are Mr Dickens so he ends up going to see a beheading. Because, you know, the guillotine is still very much being used in France. Like, it's still used to, like, the 1960s or something. So, yeah, in the mid-1800s, very much still, you know, used quite a bit. And so, after this person is, you know, guillotined, decapitated, Charles Dickens takes some time to go and just have a wee poke have a wee look around and just, you know, observe uh, the human remains that had just been killed in front of him. Not, not weird. No, it's absolutely fucking weird. Also, it's around about this time that Dickens starts receiving correspondence from Maria, his first love. Now, they are both married at this point, you know, to other people. And they start thinking of, you know, what could be, and they're flirting, and, you know, he's kind of fantasising about it. 
and they agreed to have this secret meeting without, you know, either spouse. And Maria writes to him and she tries to prepare him for their meeting. Like, I'm not exactly the same as I was 24 years ago because, you know, I'm not a teenage girl anymore. And they meet and Charles is absolutely disgusted. Like, he is well mad that she is middle-aged. You know, that she looks her age and that she's also gained weight. And he's just like... I mean, she is the inspiration for Flora, right? And he says, We all have had our Floras. Mine is living and extremely fat. What the actual fuck, Charles Dickens? But yes, this conveniently brings me back to Catherine, Charles Dickens' wife. Now, their second youngest child, Dora Anna, she is born and she is sick and frail, like from the get-go. And she doesn't make it to her first birthday. At eight months old, she suffers convulsions and passes away. And Charles Dickens calls his wife, who's in hospital, she's not well. And he basically sends word, your daughter is dead. Now I understand that grief makes you do awful things, but like, this is the mother of your children, this is your wife, this is the person you promised to love and to hold, you know? And like, throughout her entire existence, like, Catherine is described as, you know, joyous and fun and considerate, you know? She's never gloomy. Like, even Charles Dickens at this point is saying that she's just a great woman, a great wife, right? And she ends up suffering from a depression and she is struggling because, you know, her daughter, her youngest child, passed away. And this isn't the first kid that's died. This is the second that didn't survive into adulthood. And yeah, she's struggling. And this would be a perfectly reasonable time for their marriage to fall apart. But it doesn't. Because they go on to have another child. Like, she wasn't, you know, hypnotising him to shag her or anything. Like, this is an active participant in this scenario. Like, you got involved. So it wasn't as if he wasn't being a husband or whatever. Because he was still schnipping her. And, like, things had been going well for Catherine up until this point. Because, like, she had just published a cookbook, you know? And... Then, you know, her daughter passes away and her husband acts like, well, he's cruel and distant, obviously. But then he's, you know, wanting to be close and all that other shit. Yeah, cool. And they have another child, which again, active participant in. So Dickens goes on to write uh, Bleak House, Hard Times and Little Dorrit. And he ends up working closely with, like, playwrights and stuff and he's he's getting stuff going all the while working um as a publisher editor and contributing to journals like household words all the year round using these mediums to you know attack government which you know fair enough but also to be you know quite racist so an explorer ends up dying because you know he didn't know what he was doing because he's in the fucking arctic and his team resulted to cannibalism. And so he blames the Inuits because clearly it's 
the people's fault that these white dudes decided to go somewhere they didn't belong and do things they shouldn't be doing. Yep. And then after the Indian Rebellion of 1857, where, you know, the Indian subcontinent basically just revolts upon the East India Company. Did a whole episode on that. Go back and check it out. And and it's funny because they kept calling it the Indian Mutiny. And and Charles Dickens, he says that he wishes he was the commander-in-chief in India so that he would be able to, quote, do my utmost to exterminate the race upon whom the stain of the late cruelties rested. He he wanted to kill Indians for being mad they were being, you know, colonised and looted. The, the, again, totally, oh, what the fuck? What the actual fuck? Not reasonable. Not okay. Anyway, in 1857, Charles Dickens is working on this play called The Frozen Deep, which is, you know, based on this whole cannibalism situation in the Arctic, right? And and he hires this beautiful young 17-year-old actress, Ellen Ternan, who I think was known as like Nelly at the time. And he just is head over heels. He's infatuated. He decides he loves this pretty young thing. This rich old man is in love with this pretty young thing. And this is where Charles Dickens starts becoming an absolute cockwomble. Because what he does is not only does he start an affair with this, you know, 17-year-old actress, but he also absolutely gaslights Catherine. He convinces her, at least tries to, that they're not having an affair. He has the dressing room locked so that she can't walk in on him shagging his mistress. On top of that, he gets like a bookcase put in between their bed and he is he is unhappy with Catherine because after 22 years of marriage and birthing 10 children she had the audacity to become fat like he is mad that his wife gained weight in Victorian England like the winters are cold man you need you need the extra that's all I'm saying but he is just so done with her. And he's like, was it? There is a story that he put like a wall between their beds, but like it was a bookcase. He put bookcases between them, you know, so that she wouldn't touch him because he was just repulsed by her because she was old, you know, by being her age and also still younger than him. And it gets to the point where she receives a bracelet that's meant for Ellen and she just can't deal with it anymore like she is very aware that her 45 year old husband has an 18 year old mistress and Catherine is so utterly heartbroken that she just can't be there anymore she can't be in a relationship with obviously this cheating, lying man. And, you know, their affair is kind of like this open secret, right? And Charles Dickens could not get a divorce. I mean, he could, like, technically, but it would have been such a fucking scandal 
It would ruin his reputation. It would ruin his earnings. He would be buggered, right? Absolutely bollocks. So um, instead of doing that, he says, fuck this for Gibbous soldiers. And what does he do? But starts an actual letter writing campaign to destroy the reputation of his wife. So she moves out and he claims all of her, all of their children. So there's eight of them or seven at this point because Charles Jr. is old enough to be financially stable and look after himself. And so he goes and lives with his mum. Now, Catherine's younger sister, Georgina, stayed with Charles Dickens and his mistress, who then moved in. And he was there with all of his kids, or seven of his kids, with Georgina and Ellen and... He is putting out to the papers that um, she is mentally unwell. Catherine is mentally unwell. And he tries to have her committed to an asylum. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, seen a Victorian mental institution, but they are abhorrent. They are terrifying. They are disgusting. They are not places you want to be. And he wanted to put her there. That is how little this man thought of her. So he is out tarnishing her reputation left and right. He is going on about how she's mentally ill. She is a donkey. She is not his intellectual equal. She is an unloved and unloving mother. You know, because she had, you know, a state of depression after her youngest daughter died. Like, what? What the fuck, man? Like, you were sad too. Like, people are allowed to grieve. You do not get a monopoly on grief, motherfucker. Anyway, the man does not try to stop ruining her reputation for the rest of his life. Like, ever. But he can't divorce her, or he won't divorce her, because he doesn't want to ruin his reputation. And he can't really be public with Ellen, because the scandal would ruin his entire reputation. It would tarnish the brand. Oh yeah, I actually forgot this. He blames her. He blames Catherine for them having so many children. As if he was not shagging her. Like, you had sex. You had unprotected sex. Like, this is the result, man. I don't know what to tell you. Like, even the Victorian should know this is basic biology, right? And he wanted no more children after their fourth one because he said it was causing them financial strain. Like, you could have just not had sex you could have just chosen to not do that that was your choice you could just i don't know masturbate into a copy of you know the morning chronicle i don't i don't know whatever works for you and he didn't do that he chose to do this instead and like he is the one who wanted custody of their children like he knew he was going to financially support them one way or the other like he is the one who demanded Custody, guardianship, like, he would have been awarded them anyway, being the man, but he could have just let her have them. But that would have fucked up his reputation, wouldn't it? But luckily, he had her sister, Georgina, living there to raise them for him. So while he sets about tarnishing his estranged wife's reputation, he's trying to build his own. And is it philanthropy? Is it? I mean, it still is, but is it, um, you know altruistic or is it him trying to protect himself maybe it's a little from column a a little from column b 
But he's approached by the Great Ormond Street Hospital and, you know, to raise money. And so, yeah, he gets involved. He does some public readings and they raise money. Huzzah. After this, Dickens goes on a bunch of reading tours all through the UK. So he's over England and Scotland. He ends up over in Ireland for a bit. And he's doing like the journalism thing as well. But after this, he ends up writing A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations. Now, when he's 48 in September 1860, he does something, I mean, it's sus. It's suspicious, right? He puts a bonfire at the back of his house and starts burning his letters. So he is destroying correspondence. And not just him. Ellen is doing it too. They're burning so much stuff. So their letters to each other and other, like business letters stay, like that's it. Everything else is just up in smoke. Like, why? That being said, according to Dickens' daughter Kate, he and Ellen had a son together, but the son didn't like survive infancy. So there's no baptism records, there's no like burial records, nothing exists. So, was he stillborn? Was he born at all? Like, it's just a mystery. Was he just hidden until he died? Like, what What happened? Is it real? Is it not? Like, it's so, it's so weird. Like, why make it up? Like, what's the purpose? You know? Like, Charles Dickens was dead at that point. You couldn't do anything to him. Like, making up a baby just seems weird. Right? When Dickens is 50, he's offered... £10,000 to do a reading tour of Australia, which is just ridiculous amount of money. Like, I would take that now for a reading tour of Australia, let alone, like, whatever the exchange rate is. Like, so much money. Yeah, and he ends up, um, like, turning it down, I don't know, for reasons, but he does. So, three years after this, he is travelling back from Paris with Ellen and her mum and they are involved in the Staplehurst rail crash. So this train is just coming down the tracks and it, it's an absolute disaster. The train's first seven carriages just go off this bridge that was, I mean, it was under repair so it wasn't sturdy and the only carriage that was left on the track was the very one that Charles Dickens was travelling in. So there are people pinned under like railway carts. They are just the in- injured, just splaying about. People are dying all around. And he's walking around with a flask of whiskey, trying to give people drinks and, you know, trying to deal with the horror. It's not going to be a pleasant sight for anyone to be involved in. But on top of this as well, he has to keep it quiet. Like, he is trying to hide the fact that he was there because they were travelling back from Paris. Him and his mistress and his mistress's mother. Like, he had left a manuscript he was working on for, like, a mutual friend. He left in the carriage And because he didn't want it left there, he didn't want people to know he was there initially, he had to go back and get it. And there was an inquest about the crash, 
and Dickens managed to avoid being like included because he did not want it out there that you know he was having an affair that he was with somebody when he shouldn't have been he didn't want it known that he was with this woman half his age like scandal Victorian scandal Dickens ends up travelling to the States to do some readings again. He was supposed to go before the Civil War, but then, you know, the Civil War happened. So he had to wait till that finished. And so he goes over and he's hobnobbing and he's schmoozing and he's doing his readings all over the place. And he's doing this lecture tour and he just makes it home or makes it on the boat, I should say, before he has to, like, pay taxes on his lecture, which, I mean, fair. So when he's around 56, 57, when he's back in the UK, he starts doing a series of farewell readings. And he's travelling around Ireland, Scotland, England. And he was supposed to do like a hundred readings in total, starting in October. But by the time April comes, he starts having these like fits of paralysis. He's seizing up, he's having issues, and then he has a stroke. I'm not a medical doctor however even I know that you know a stroke is not exactly conducive to you know a nationwide reading tour. He listens to his doctors and he cancels the tour and he ends up working on his final book The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Now after a while Dickens was you know well enough to do some final readings for some sponsors and shit and he does 12 performances and by the time he gets to the last one things are not looking good for Charlie Boy here. And in May 1870 he does his last public appearance. He is at a banquet with the Prince and Princess of Wales and it's at the Royal Academy. A month later Dickens suffers another stroke in the official abode of Ellen in Peckham. He ends up getting moved back to Gads Hill, which is his official address. And the next day, the 9th of June 1870, at the age of 58, Charles Dickens passes away. Charles Dickens wanted, you know, like a quiet, like very private funeral. But, you know, um, he was like the most famous author at the time. And so naturally... He gets buried at the poet's corner of Westminster Abbey. Because, you know, kind of a big deal. Now, before he passed away, he managed to, like, put in place provisions for Ellen so that she was independent and she had access to money and that she was taken care of, right? And as for Catherine, well, no such provisions were there for her. When she finally passes away nine years later, upon her deathbed, she asks that letters that Charles Dickens wrote her be handed over to the British Museum. Like she'd kept them all this time. For decades upon decades, she had kept the love letters, all the correspondence. And she has one simple request. To let the world know that he loved me once. Fuck you, Charles Dickens. Fuck you. She was a delight and you fucked her up. Like, you absolute cockwomble. I am so, like, livid, livid at him 
and his self-satisfying, shitty existence. Oh, I helped the poor. Yeah, but you destroyed other people's lives. Like, it doesn't give you a free pass. Like, yes, you did some good things. A broken clock is still right twice a day. <sighs> Rage. Rage. But yeah. But yes, you highlighted the issues of the poor. Were you racist? Yes. He's also anti-Semitic. Like, I don't know if you've ever read Oliver Twist, but Fagin is, is Jewish. He's Jew-coded and he's like this criminal. And you'll notice that a lot in his works. Like, there are usually, that when they do exist in his novels, are criminals and thieves and just... Like, it's weird when Shakespeare, who was just full of, like, dick jokes, is a more respectful person than you. Like, that that doesn't happen. But yes, Good to the Poor produced the second best Muppet movie. Listen, I will stand by a Muppet Treasure Island till the day I die. I fucking love Tim Curry and I fucking love Jim Jiminy Jim Jiminy Jim Jiminy Jim Jim. It has Billy Conley. It has Rosa Clump Potatoes. You know what? I don't know which one's better. I love both. They're so different. You have Michael Caine who's just acting like, you know, the most like Oscar-worthy performance. So just in it. And then you've got Tim Curry who's just like the pantomime dame. Like, I just don't know how to... It's amazing. It's just pure gloriousness. Anyway, so ends our story on Charles Dickens. If you liked my retelling of this tale, feel free to rate and review five stars. I deserve it. If you want to help donate to stuff, you can always go to the tip jar. Um, there's the Patreon. And I think that's it, actually. I don't think I've got anything else. I need to work on the merch again, because I've got some merch in the Patreon, but it only comes after a period of time. But it's tough when you're doing it like all by yourself. Um, don't forget you can follow me on the socials. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, whatever the fuck Twitter's called now. A squiggle and a dot, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. And um, Facebook, I guess. I I should do more things on it. I just don't. Right, it's recommendation time. Okay, you know what? For watching, you are all watching a Muppet Christmas Carol. If you don't, no, there's nothing wrong with you. Awful watch it bring some joy in your life damn it christmas joy rizzo the rat in a tiny suit like what more do you want do i need to say the cheese is for mrs line again i mean we all know it's golden and it just is for reading i'm gonna go with hercule Poirot's christmas listen i love my agatha christie deal with it and for listening um, I'm going to suggest Redacted History, actually. Go listen to their podcast. If you don't, he's great. Go listen to him, he's fab. So go do that. And with that, I shall bid you good night. Adios. Au revoir. Avoid us in, my friends. Bye-bye.